I sat naked on the edge of my bed with a lamp directed at my penis. My pubic hair was almost completely removed. I ran a pair of tweezers over the small bumps that littered my stomach just above my crotch. Each bump was easily dislodged, revealing a tiny red molluscum that sat just under the skin. With a light scrape, each molluscum clung to the edge of my tweezers and was carried away from my body. I wiped the small red contagion on a tissue and scanned my groin for another one. It had started with a bump on the shaft of my penis. I had no health insurance at the time, or at any point in most of my adult life, so I treated this bump, like all my other strange ailments, by giving it time to go away on its own. I abstained from sex and avoided that part of my penis while masturbating. After a couple of months, though, I made my way to the free clinic in Chelsea. It could be a couple of things, said the doctor as she held my penis in her gloved hand. We'll do some tests right now if you got time to wait. Sure, I've been waiting for months, I said. They referred me to Bellevue Hospital for treatment. Bellevue, while most known for housing the insane in the late 1800s, is now a great asset for people in New York City without money or health insurance. By simply providing a copy of my meager paycheck, they offered me complete medical care for free. The downside of this free care is the wait time. The next available appointment with a dermatologist was three months away. Molluscum are very common with children, explained the dermatologist three months later. Children spend so much time making skin-to-skin -skin contact when they're playing that it can really spread quickly. It's only considered a sexually transmitted disease with adults. I sat on an adjustable medical chair with a paper hospital gown on my body and a thick, disposable pad under my naked ass. The hospital gown exposed my bare penis to the dermatologist and the two medical students that trailed him. One of these students was a beautiful young woman about my age. Okay, look here, said the dermatologist, pointing out the lump on my penis to the beautiful young student. We can see that this molluscum's had some time to grow. You can also see a number of younger molluscum around the pubic area. I looked up at the doctor. These additional infections were news to me. We're going to use cryotherapy to remove the virus. The doctor motioned to a nurse who brought him a metal bottle with a thin nozzle that sprayed liquid nitrogen. The molluscum is killed instantly when it's frozen, the doctor went on. The skin blisters for a week, and then the dead molluscum's gathered in a scab that falls off when the blister heals. Is it painful? I asked. Well... It doesn't feel good. The doctor pointed the liquid nitrogen at my penis and asked, Are you ready? The beautiful medical student leaned a little closer. A follow-up appointment was scheduled for a month later, but I would quickly learn that this was not soon enough. Each visit proved to have a number of new bumps covering my groin and a number of new medical students waiting to see my penis. I got in a routine of removing as much pubic hair as possible before the appointments to give the doctor an unobscured look. Just before taking the train to Bellevue, I would scan my body and take note of every new bump that was present. Later, I would use a pen to mark X's over each of the new molluscum, just to make sure none were missed. 
Still, these monthly visits were not enough to keep up with the growing number of bumps. So I began my nightly ritual of boiling a pot of water, dropping in a pair of tweezers to be disinfected, and then hacking away at the virus myself. Even with this aggressive method, the molluscum persisted for almost another year. All in all, it was a year and a half of frustration and celibacy. The day the doctor pronounced me molluscum-free, I went on a rampage. I hit the bars every night of the week looking for a lady. Anyone. In the end, I was introduced to a friend of a friend, and we ended up having sex within an hour of meeting each other. But a couple days later, I found another bump. I can't have sex with you, and I can't take my underwear off, I told her on our second date. We can kiss, and that's about it. And she stayed with me. For over two months, we kept my pants on, until a few more doctor's appointments had passed and no more bumps had surfaced. That girl never left me, never contracted my virus, and eventually became my wife. On my first visit to Bellevue, I asked the information desk where I could find dermatology. Take the elevator to the fourth floor and take a left. It's the first desk you'll come to. I followed those directions and found myself at the back of a long line of people waiting to check in. While killing time in line, I noticed this beautiful indie rock girl in a red sweatshirt. I couldn't stop glancing at her. At this point, I was maybe five months into my dilemma and already desperate for human affection. She sat in a waiting room chair, having already checked in, and looked at the floor in a sad, beautiful way. I thought, maybe she too has molluscum, and we could date and pass it back and forth to each other, and all of this sorrow and loneliness will be over. What can I help you with? asked the woman at the front desk. I glanced over at the girl in the red sweatshirt to see if she was in earshot, then whispered something to the receptionist. What did you say? The receptionist leaned forward in her chair. I whispered once again. The receptionist looked at the people sitting in the waiting room and the line that had formed behind me. Her face became a bit softer, and she leaned forward again. Is this your first time here? she asked. I nodded, and she told me to follow her into an office where we could speak privately. It's okay, she said, as I took a chair and glanced around the office's bare walls and well-worn desk. There was only one window, and it faced back into the waiting room. When were you diagnosed? The receptionist asked. Three months ago, I said. She gave me a solemn nod. Okay, tell me what's going on. I have a bump, I said, on my penis. The doctor said it was molluscum. The receptionist's eyes lit up. She leaned back in her seat and convulsed in a full-body laugh. The laughter bounced off the walls of the small office and passed through the door into the waiting room. Honey, she said, wiping a joyful tear from her eye, you have just made my day. Do you know where you are? You're in the HIV wing. She began laughing again. Whew, she said. I thought I was about to talk someone through their first time. She explained that I'd come to the right floor but taken the wrong elevator. Dermatology was in the front of the building. 
No worries, she said. I'll walk you over there myself. As the receptionist escorted me through her waiting room, I looked at the patients around me and noticed, for the first time, that their attitude was different from the other waiting rooms I'd been in. People knew each other. They talked to others across the room in a familiar tone, laughing at a comment I had missed. There was a community and an openness in here that had not existed at the Chelsea Free Clinic or any other hospital I'd known. Someone joined the line to check in and hug the person standing in front of them. I tiptoed through the waiting room as this community spoke to one another, all except for the girl in the red sweatshirt who just stared at the floor in that same sad, beautiful way. Why couldn't we date, I asked myself. I hadn't had sex in months and want for a long time to come, and wasn't sex what got me in this predicament in the first place? I just wanted someone to be with. Or maybe I wanted someone with whom I could talk to about the STD that I'd been hiding from my friends for months. In any case, I was lonely and scared and wanted to take care of her in the same way I wished someone would take care of me. But of course, my problems were nothing and would soon be forgotten. And hers were larger than these nurses or this waiting room, or the young medical students, or this hospital. For this next story, there are at least three things that you need to know. The first is that the winter of 2002 was extremely cold in Boston. The temperatures regularly dropped below zero, and the winds were howling, and just like every other day of my adult life, I rode my bicycle everywhere and felt the cold in my lungs and in my bones and in my groin. The second thing you need to know is that I was couch surfing. It was my senior year of college, and... By my calculations, I'd made enough friends with enough couches that I was guaranteed to find a place to crash every night. So I didn't secure a room in the dorms or find an apartment with friends. Instead, I hid a couple of changes of clothing around town and carried everything else in a backpack light enough to take with me on my bicycle. The third thing you need to know is that I had appointed a freshman girl named Allison as my web manager. Social media was just hitting the scene and While I did not feel like I had extra time to spend in front of a computer, I also didn't want to be left out. This predates Facebook, MySpace, and Friendster. In the punk culture, earlier social media websites were already striving and competing. Outcasts from all over the country were finding each other online. Elementary message boards were being scrolled through, and profile pictures were being uploaded and talked about. Allison insisted that I get involved. Come on, she said. I have a digital camera. We can upload a picture right now. We created a profile, jotted down a couple of bands I liked, and then I gave her free reign to pose as me while commenting on the board or answering any personal messages. I'd stop by her room every couple of days and see how my internet presence was doing. 
I'm not sure how Allison and I met. She lived in the dorms where I would sometimes crash on the couches in the common room, but I don't think that had anything to do with it. In any case, I was in a frenzy at this time to meet anyone I could. More people, more couches. Also, Allison had a terrific laugh. She laughed at everything. My childhood friend, Kyle Thomas, of King Tough fame, shares this kind of laughter. Sometimes when my mom was feeling down, she'd ask me to invite Kyle over for dinner because Kyle would just laugh at everything she said and make her feel like the funniest person in the world, and it would lift her spirits. With Allison, you could just point at a postcard she had tacked on her dorm room wall and ask, what's this? And it would set her off laughing. It was uplifting. During my routine visits, Allison and I talked about love and flirting and crushes we had on other students at our school. She was cute, but her skin was bad, and she lacked confidence in ways I could relate to. But that laugh. I'd tell her how I slept in someone's pantry, and she'd lose her mind. Now, this story begins on a night in early December. I was on my way to find some friends at a club in Alston, which is a neighborhood of Boston. The temperature had fallen well below zero, and, like usual, I was out riding my bicycle. Why are you grabbing your dick? asked my friend Dave as I walked my bike past the front of the club. He huddled near the door smoking a cigarette. I locked my bicycle to a parking meter, then continued to rub my hand on my crotch. I don't know, I said. Maybe I sat on my nuts weird while biking here. You probably just froze your dick off in this cold, Dave went on. How do you ride your bike in this weather? How does anyone do anything, I said. Inside, the boys drank cheap beer while the girls drank vodka ginger ales through little straws. Me, too frugal to pay bar prices, sat empty-handed at a table in the corner. My backpack with all my belongings rested on the floor next to my feet. There were maybe a hundred people at the club, and I knew almost all of them. We met here every Saturday night, drank till they threw us out at 2 a.m., then moved to someone's house where the drinking continued. That girl did a porno, shouted Dave, while pointing across the room. I tried not to play into Dave's excitement, but my curiosity got the best of me. Who? I asked nonchalantly. That girl with Morgan. Our friend Morgan stood at the bar ordering drinks. Next to him was a girl that I'd never seen before. She was short, maybe five foot three, wearing a sheer white t-shirt with paint stains on it. She had sharp black eyebrows, a cute plump face, and her hair had been bleached yellow and shaven within half an inch of her scalp. Morgan never comes to the bar, Dave pointed out, but he finds this porn star and all of a sudden he's a man about town. There's a fourth thing you may need to know for this story. From age 18 to age 25, I was overwhelmingly and uncontrollably in love with every girl with short hair. It was the be-all, end-all turn-on for me. What do you mean, I asked. What kind of porno? I don't know, said Dave. The kind where people fuck each other on camera. I watched Morgan pay for his drinks, then make his way up to a balconied area with a nice view of the dance floor. I grabbed my backpack from the ground and slung it over my shoulder. 
This is Eve, said Morgan, lifting his drink in the direction of the girl with short hair. She's visiting from UMass Amherst. Eve nodded, and I did the same. I fucking hate this place, Morgan went on, motioning down towards the dance floor. It was early in the evening. Only a handful of people were already on their feet. The drinks are expensive, Morgan said, and everybody is trying too hard. Look at this asshole in the mod outfit. I looked down and saw my friend Johnny skipping around the dance floor in a thin-cut vintage suit. I like his style, said Eve. He looks great. Eve leaned over the railing, looking down on the crowd, so I did the same. Johnny did a spin on the dance floor, and Eve slid down the railing until her arm was touching mine. She leaned in close and whispered, We're trying to find a girl for Morgan. Eve was in a porno, Morgan said, the moment Eve was out of earshot. I could see the back of her shaven head as she walked down the steps towards the bathroom. What? I asked pretending this was the first I'd heard of it. Morgan shook his head. I don't know, he said. I don't know what they do over at UMass. He leaned his cocktail to his face and drank until there were only ice cubes left. In any case, he said, I met her online. She's cool. She'd never been to Boston before and she wanted to check it out. I leaned in close to ask Morgan a quiet question, but he cut me off by pushing his body away from the railing. You need anything from the bar, he asked. I'm going to get another drink. Just after midnight, Morgan led Eve and I down Commonwealth Avenue on our way to a house party that one of Morgan's friends was throwing. I left my bicycle locked to the parking meter in front of the bar. After a couple of blocks, we passed a girl that was almost completely hidden under a scarf and down jacket. Her hood covered her head, leaving only her eyes, nose, and part of her mouth visible. Morgan, said Eve, pointing at the girl quite obviously. What about her? She's pretty. I didn't know anyone at the party. Eve stood in the kitchen. A group of mass art students had surrounded her and seemed to be taking turns trying to make Eve laugh. Morgan had disappeared upstairs with some friends. I was in the living room, leaning back on the couch, asking myself, would it be crazy to sleep here? Okay, Fletcher, we're heading home. Morgan grabbed his coat from a nearby lazy boy and slid it over his shoulders. Eve stood by his side. Can I crash at your place? I asked. What? Morgan reared his head back and gave me a long look down his nose. Why can't you stay at your place? Well, I said, there's a funny thing about how I'm living right now. So this is it, said Morgan pointing out a pair of couches arranged in an L-shape in the corner of his living room. He shared a three-story house with nine art school students. The living room was spacious, although hundreds of knickknacks lined the shelves, hung from the walls, and rested on the coffee table and windowsills. Eve already called the couch on the right, said Morgan. So you're over here, Fletcher. I'll grab you a sleeping bag. I had never been to Morgan's house before. I found the kitchen, pulled a clean mug from the dish rack, and filled it with tap water. I slowly paced the living room, studying some velvet paintings that adorned the walls while keeping an eye on Eve out of the corner of my vision. I watched as she pulled a notebook from her red duffel bag and began writing in it. 
Here you go, said Morgan, tossing a rolled up sleeping bag so it bounced off my shoulder, spilling some of the water from my cup. You need anything else? I'm good, I said. I placed the sleeping bag on my couch, picked up my backpack, and removed my toothbrush. Eve looked up from her notebook. Can I borrow some toothpaste, she asked. The question was directed at me, but in truth, I'd just been dipping into whatever toothpaste I found each night. I looked from Eve to Morgan, then back to Eve again. Morgan shook his head. There's some in the bathroom on the second floor, he said. I lay in my sleeping bag, staring at the ceiling and occasionally peeking over at Eve, who continued to scribble in her notebook. My contact lenses were dry. They stuck to my eyelids when I blinked. I carried a contact lens case with fresh solution in my backpack, but the prospect of Eve seeing me in my glasses embarrassed me, so I settled into the dryness and tried to only blink when necessary. The room was illuminated by a reading lamp, nestled in the corner where the two couches intersected. Is the light bothering you? Eve asked. She lowered her notebook and looked in my direction. It doesn't bother me at all, I said. You're pretty quiet, Eve pointed out. Not always, I said. The whole time we've been together, you've hardly said a word. Eve put her notebook on the coffee table and, laying on the couch, leaned her head backwards so it hung off the cushions, dangling upside down in the air. You can tell me, she said. Is the light bothering you? It doesn't bother me, I said. But I'm kind of cold in this sleeping bag. Eve lifted her head, then lifted the flap of her blanket. It's warm over here, she said. Will you believe me when I tell you I never thought Eve would be sexually promiscuous, at least not more so than anyone else. There's a teen comedy version of this story where Eve's involvement in an adult film serves as evidence that she would be easy, sexually, but this idea never crossed my mind. To me, having sex on camera seemed rebellious and exciting and even courageous. I had a particular fondness for townies that brawled in the streets and chatterboxes that did cocaine all night, and in the same way that I idolized these ne'er-do-wells, I also loved Eve. She was one of the most beautiful strangers I had ever seen in all the ways I thought strangers were beautiful. I gave my dry eyes a blink, slid out of my sleeping bag, and cautiously moved from one couch to the other. I woke in a cushioned chair in my school library. It was Monday evening. Although I had no home, I still had plenty of homework, so every day after class, I buckled down at a library desk or in one of these cushioned seats. The school had a policy that every book in the curriculum be available for in-library use, so in this way, I was able to save a bit of money as well. A nap was often included with my studies. It's hard to get a proper night's sleep on couches alone. The staff never confronted me about my snoozing. It was not uncommon to see other students doing the same thing. I woke thinking of Eve, and these thoughts went straight to my groin. My sexual desire is often heightened in the moments after I wake. 
I grabbed my backpack and made my way to the handicapped restroom in the back of the library, the one with a locking door. It was far from my first time masturbating in this bathroom. The library was the closest thing I had to a home. I thought of Eve and our couch, illuminated by that one glorious lamp. In the morning, Eve asked for my phone number, but I had to admit I didn't have one. I was still four years away from my first cell phone. She promised to find me online. There was an exhilarating moment on the couch when I was laying back with Eve's head between my legs. One of Morgan's roommates descended the staircase into the living room. They made no effort to avert their gaze, even locking eyes with me for a time. This voyeur passed quietly into the kitchen, but there was an excitement in being seen, a thrill in the confirmation that this beautiful girl was actually interested in me. I thought of this moment while locked away in the handicapped bathroom and ejaculated into the toilet. Then, looking down, my stomach dropped. My semen swirled in a puddle of blood. I stepped away from the toilet as my heart began to race. In a panic, I looked around the bathroom and found myself looking back from a full-length mirror. My pants and underwear had been completely removed from my left leg, but were still pulled up to the thigh on my right. One empty pant leg dangled and brushed the bathroom floor. I wore a tan sweater, and my penis remained nestled in my left hand. Looking back to the toilet, blood and semen continued to swirl in the bowl. It had become hard to tell where one ended and the other began. In a single motion, I lunged forward and flushed the toilet, erasing the evidence. This did not calm me down. As I washed my hands and penis in the oversized handicap sink, I began to shake from foot to head. Soap dripped from my fingers as they vibrated uncontrollably. I didn't mention this incident to anyone for three days, but it remained on my mind at all times, in class, in the library, and on whomever's couch I crashed. I wanted to check my semen again, but I was too afraid to masturbate. Also, I was unsure that I could maintain an erection, given my level of anxiety. By day three, I was in bad shape. I had barely been sleeping. The temperature outside remained freezing both day and night. The city seemed hostile. It was under these conditions that I decided to stop by and see Allison, my web manager. Like usual, her dorm room door was open, exposing her room to everybody in the hall. Allison sat on her bed in a black sweatshirt and striped pajama bottoms. I walked through her door, exhausted and frightened, and immediately began to cry. Oh my God, she said. What's happening? What's wrong? I paced around her tiny room and tried to pull myself together. I took a deep breath and released it in a long, uncontrollable moan. Now Allison was on her feet. She shut her door, then walked me to her bed and sat me down. She offered me a can of soda, which I declined. Okay, I said. Okay. I took another deep breath. I hooked up with a girl who did a porno, and when I masturbated afterwards, 
There was blood in my cum. Allison's eyes became wide, processing my words, rolling them around in her head. And then she totally lost it. Her laughter started from her gut, but was soon shaking her whole body. None of this came as a surprise to me, and I continued talking, happy to say out loud the words I'd been repeating over and over in my head for the last three days. But I don't know what it is, I went on, still sobbing a bit with each word, because my balls had felt really weird earlier in the night, the night that I hooked up with that girl. Allison was laughing so hard, she was having a hard time breathing. I don't know if I just froze my testicles in this crazy weather and did some kind of damage to them, or if this porn girl gave me an STD. Tears welled in Allison's eyes. I could tell she was in pain from lack of oxygen. Soon the tears streamed down her face. I watched as they landed on her dorm room floor and suddenly felt a great relief. Relief from carrying these worries all on my own. And then I started to laugh. And we were both laughing and crying and laughing again. Later, we sat together at Allison's computer, as we had done many times before. If you search the internet today for the potential causes of blood and semen, you'll see that it's fairly common and mostly benign, and that a boy in his early 20s should not worry about such a thing, unless it continues for weeks on end. In 2002, though, this problem had yet to be addressed on the internet. I don't know, said Allison, clicking away from a graphic picture that she didn't wish to continue looking at. I think you should go to a doctor. Maybe, I said. But you didn't even have sex with her, Allison continued. We just went down on each other. Can you get her number from your friend? Allison looked at me and I shrugged. She said she'd find me online, I said. So Allison did what I had originally assigned her to do. She opened the internet, pulled up some now long-forgotten social media site, and typed in whatever password she had set up for me. We sat there, looking at the screen, waiting for an invitation that never came. This third story starts with a hairdresser, those wild New York City hairdressers. Always loud, always on drugs, always fun. This hairdresser ushered me and Vanessa into Vanessa's bedroom. Okay, she said, you two have fun. Then she shut the door behind us. It was early evening, we were drunk. I can't remember how I met these people or ended up in their apartment but I've been sitting in their living room drinking since 2 p.m. Vanessa stumbled onto her bed and started removing her clothing. The sun had yet to fully set, and in the dull light of dusk, I could see that almost every inch of Vanessa's arms, legs, and torso were covered in tattoos. Everything going okay in there? shouted the hairdresser, pounding once on the door. Although I hate tattoos, I was excited to be in this room. New York City was brand new to me, and while I'd been going out to bars and clubs every night, 
I'd yet to find a woman that showed even the slightest interest in me. You're actually skinnier than me, I said, as I removed my pants and pulled my shirt over my head. I'm skinnier than everyone, Vanessa said. And then we were kissing. Vanessa's bedsheet smelled clean, but old empty beer cans lined her nightstand. She clawed at my body as I felt her bones just beneath her skin. After five minutes or so, I shimmied down Vanessa's torso and laid my face between her legs. Wait, she said in a nervous tone. She gently ran her hand through my hair and ushered me back to the head of the bed. I'm not clean, she said. For reasons that I'll never be able to explain, I took these words to mean that she was on her period. She reached down, cupped my penis, and slid it into her vagina. I woke at dawn with an urgent need to urinate. The light in the room had hardly changed from the shadowy half-lit tones I had seen falling asleep. I was somewhere between still drunk and hungover. Everything around me appeared oversized. Vanessa lay next to me on her stomach. Her head faced the wall. Her black hair was everywhere. I left my clothing on Vanessa's floor and staggered naked through the living room on my way to the toilet. A string dangling from the ceiling illuminated the bathroom. In the mirror, I noticed that my face had bloated as a result of the alcohol. The bags beneath my eyes glistened. I turned to the toilet and took hold of my penis, but a painful shock pulsed through my body. Leaning forward, I saw that the shaft of my penis was completely covered in open sores, one crater after another. Some were wet with pus, some had already crusted over in a rough scab. I took a step away from the toilet and aimed my penis towards the light. Upon closer examination, it looked worse than before. I unrolled a couple squares of toilet paper and used them to lightly hold my penis while guiding my urine towards the toilet. Back in Vanessa's room, I gathered my things. The sun had still not crested the horizon, but the sky was blue and it filtered through the window. I carefully slid my underwear over my hips and, even more carefully, pulled my tight pants over my underwear. Outside the morning was born. It was mid-June. I unlocked my bicycle from a signpost and slowly lifted one leg over the crossbar. After a bit of adjusting, I found a relatively comfortable position with my pants and underwear lowered about six inches below where they would normally sit. This gave my penis a small amount of room to dangle. I pushed off and pedaled home in a slow, bow-legged slither. Are you feeling better? asked my co-worker. I stood at the register, leaning against the countertop. I was working retail, selling items of clothing that had no meaning to me. Yeah, I said. I'm, I'm feeling good. None of my co-workers knew about the pus and the scabs. I'd missed two days of work and blamed it on a cold. It was probably just allergies, said my co-worker. My pants and underwear again sat six inches lower than I would normally wear them. No one mentioned it. The pus had basically stopped, and now the shaft of my penis was encased in a quilt of circular scabs. Each one was a bit concave in the middle, rising to the edges. They felt, as I imagined, an alligator skin would feel.
On the other hand, the head of my penis was still soft and supple, oblivious to the rest of the mess. Earlier that day, I found some relief by stuffing a number of extra soft Kleenex tissues into my underwear. My penis rested lightly in this nest. Fletcher, yelled my manager while exiting the break room. You're not on register. Circulate the floor. I pushed myself off the counter and casually graced my waistline with my palms, forcing my pants a little lower. I gently took one step and then another, beginning my slow circle around the store. Of course I thought it was herpes. It had to be. Open sores on a penis? I had no other explanation. But, like usual, I didn't have any health insurance. I had just moved to Brooklyn. I had yet to make any close friends. And who do you talk to about something like this? I didn't want to bring it up with anyone. Not even the person that gave it to me. So I waited. I watched the pus dry and the sores crust over. I watched the wounds heal and the scabs flake away. Mostly I just stayed at home, in my sweatpants, hiding in my room. After two weeks, though, my penis looked like a penis again. Not even a scar. It was the 3rd of July, and I was feeling good. My penis looked great, the weather was beautiful, and my boss hadn't put me on the schedule for Independence Day, so I was cutting loose. My coworkers and I took turns running to the bar across the street and chugging $1 beers while we were still on the clock. The misery of the last two and a half weeks was the furthest thing from my mind. I met up with some friends after work, and we stocked up on 24-ounce cans of Coors before hitting the park. I felt so good, I didn't even bother hiding my alcohol by pouring it into a plastic cup. I proudly drank from my can, cloaked only in a brown paper bag. I woke in Vanessa's room. I knew this instantly as I stared at the line of empty beer cans on her nightstand, unchanged from the weeks before. No, 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 I repeated in my head, but I couldn't talk my way out of it. I lightly brought my fingertips down to my groin. My penis was wrecked. Vanessa again slept facing the wall. I silently removed myself from her bed, gathered my clothing, and carefully placed the items on my body in the way I'd perfected two weeks earlier. I had no recollection of coming here, but I found my bicycle outside, locked to the signpost, as if nothing was wrong. Later that night, I watched fireworks go off in the distance from the window of my apartment. It was my first holiday in New York City, but I was in too much pain to move. I sat alone in the living room, in front of my roommate's computer, masturbating by gently rubbing the head of my penis and avoiding the shaft at all costs. These blisters healed as well. Two weeks later, it was as if nothing had ever happened. As time went on, I resumed my life, and when someone finally let me, I resumed having sex. Years went by, and I never experienced another blister, but they always remained on my mind. I read that it was possible to carry and spread herpes without having reoccurring breakouts. Still, I was young and selfish, and soon, if a woman did not propose that I put on a condom, I wasn't going to bring up the idea. A couple years later, I lucked into some health insurance for about six months, 
so I went to go get myself tested for everything. I sat in the waiting room terrified, literally shaking, not about the herpes, but about what everyone fears most in this scenario, HIV. I decided then, in that moment, that it was better not to know if you had a life-changing terminal disease, better to live in ignorant bliss. I stared at the door and thought about how easy it would be to leave before receiving my results. But I was too afraid to leave, or brave enough to stay, depending on how you look at it. Everything looks good, said the doctor. Just cut down on the alcohol. My heart leapt. So I don't have herpes, I clarified. The doctor looked at a computer screen. We didn't test you for that, said the doctor. We'd need a swab from an open sore. Is that something you experience? I wouldn't get my answer until six years after my nights with Vanessa. I sat in the Chelsea Free Clinic waiting to learn that I had molluscum. No matter what ailment you came in with, the Chelsea Clinic encouraged you to get their full range of tests. I agreed to this blood work, but confirmed with a nurse multiple times that herpes be included. They explained that, without swabbing an open sore, they would have to check for antibodies in my blood associated with warding off herpes outbreaks. I said that sounded fine. You have molluscum, said the doctor. You're going to have to set up an appointment over at Bellevue. Do I have herpes, I asked. The doctor stared at me for a moment before she repeated, You have molluscum. Yes, I agreed. But do I have herpes as well? The doctor looked at a printout in her hand. No, she said. Only molluscum. I exited that clinic a happy man, not knowing the year and a half of hell that molluscum would bring. There are two memories that play out in my mind when I think about the time period in which I believed I had herpes. Both involve women being very upset with me. Not long after the sores on my penis had healed, I found myself at a bar on Ludlow Street in Manhattan. It was a basement bar that I frequented. On this particular night, I sat on a bench along one wall, talking to a beautiful redhead that I had just met and was very interested in. She didn't have short hair, but that was all right with me. We were yelling to one another over the music, lips in each other's ears, when I discovered Vanessa hovering over us. There was a flow of traffic that moved just in front of our bench, ushering people from one room to another. Vanessa ignored this movement, causing a bit of a roadblock. She looked at me with a sour face and began yelling, screaming rules of civility that I didn't think she had any right preaching because she had given me herpes. And the strange thing was, the beautiful redhead didn't notice. She continued telling me about herself, letting her lips grace the tip of my ear, while Vanessa turned red, shouting. Slowly, and what I believed at the time to be justifiably, I raised my right hand, extended my middle finger, and looked Vanessa directly in the eyes. I couldn't tell what either girl was saying, but I kept my finger extended for a time, and Vanessa stormed away. The redhead paused for a moment, looked around the room, and then mentioned she was from Detroit.
The second memory is more personal and causes me more shame to recall. For five months, I've been in a relationship with a girl named Lily. This is the longest relationship I've had with anyone who isn't my wife, and it had become quite serious. I still spent my days wandering by myself in my usual bloner way, but every night, Lily and I got together and spent hours in each other's company before going to sleep in her bed. We shared almost all the same interests, laughed at the same jokes, and never argued about anything. There was nothing to stop this relationship from going on indefinitely. Nothing except my constant need to be free. By our fourth month together, this desire was catching up with me. During this time, I was working at a bar not ten blocks from Lily's apartment. I found myself staying longer after my shifts, adding another two beers and three shots to my already alcohol-heavy regimen. It was hard to justify breaking up with someone when there was nothing wrong, particularly when you care about that person. But I knew my desire to be single was mounting, and soon I couldn't be happy any other way. I would come up with definitive dates to break the bad news. This Saturday I'm going to tell her it's over, I'd remind myself. But then Saturday would come, and there was always a reason to put it off. First, she got fired from her coffee shop job, and it seemed malicious to pile on bad news. Next, she was preparing for her first waitressing gig, and I didn't want to distract her from making a good first impression. Four months quickly turned into five. All this time, we stayed at Lily's place. I had moved to New York City with a budget of $200 a month for housing. Everyone said that this was impossible, but I found it sharing a 600-square-foot loft with four roommates. We built our rooms on top of each other, literally. Mine was barely big enough to accommodate a bed, a living situation that's actually been pretty common in my life. But this room was special in that the ceiling was under four feet tall. I could crawl into my room, fall asleep, and crawl back out in the morning. That was about it. But Lily couldn't understand what these dimensions meant. As time went on, she started taking it personal when I refused to invite her over. Just one night, she demanded. I want to meet your friends. You have met my friends, I pointed out. The people I live with are just random. They're strangers I share a bathroom with. Still, Lily couldn't be deterred. So, five months into our relationship, we set a date. A party was taking place down the block from my loft. We planned to meet at the party, watch a few bands play, then come back to my place. When the night came around, though, Lily was behaving strangely. Do you want another beer? I pointed to where we'd hit our six-pack of PBR under a pile of discarded coats. I'm fine, she said, looking at me, then quickly looking away. I leaned in to give her a kiss, but she withdrew her face. Lily watched the band play with rude indifference. We can go back to my place soon, I said. The night ended with us crouched on my twin-size mattress. The mattress was encased in a hodgepodge of taped-together trash bags, leftover evidence from the bedbugs we had dealt with a few years earlier. You don't have sheets, Lily said. No, only the sleeping bag. And one of your walls is covered in black mold. I think that's true, I admitted. It is true, Lily said. It's right there. She turned her attention to my one shelf. Are these porno mags? 
I don't have a computer, I said as way of explanation. Okay, Lily nodded her head. I see why you didn't want me here. It was nothing personal, I began, but she cut me off. Fletcher, I've got to tell you something. She stared at the row of porno magazines, neatly placed beside a few of my records. I woke up today with a sore on my lip. It's covered in makeup now, but it's the sore, and I don't know what it is. I did some research online and saw that you can get herpes from sharing a spoon with someone. I know my roommate Dave has herpes. I don't think I shared anything with him, but maybe I did. Now I was staring at the porno magazines as well, avoiding Lily's face. Look, she said, I just want you to know that I didn't cheat on you or anything, and I'm going to go get checked out, and if it is herpes, it looks like there's a lot of safe ways we can still be together. But we can't kiss right now because, if it is, this is the time that I would be the most contagious. My mattress rested on the ground, which was a single piece of plywood that separated my room from my roommate below. A single sheet of drywall stopped our conversation from reaching another roommate to our right. And I don't think you cheated on me, Lily went on. I'm not accusing you of anything. I just needed to tell you that I have this thing and I don't know exactly what's going on right now. There was a pause. What are you thinking? she asked. My eyes wandered from the pornos to a banjo that rested in the corner of my room. Dirty laundry tumbled out of a basket and collected around a pair of cowboy boots on my floor. The moldy wall waited silently. I think we shouldn't be together. I said. Imagine being in a relationship for five months. Everything's going smoothly. No arguments. You spend every night together. And then, out of the blue. She asked me where this was coming from. I didn't have an answer. She asked me if I thought she was cheating on me. I said no. The truth was, I didn't want to contract herpes from someone that I was planning on breaking up with anyway. Lily had been scared, but now she was sad and confused, grappling with how we had gotten here. She asked if we could stay together a little longer. She wanted a chance to work out whatever problem I was having, now that she knew there was a problem to be worked out. She pleaded, and I gave in. Lily got her wish that night, the original wish. We slept in my twin-size bed, on top of the trash bags draped in my dirty sleeping bag. She stayed at my place. When we woke, we were still boyfriend and girlfriend, but I immediately began to do the cowardly thing. I acted distant, unloving. I found excuses to stay at my own place. Soon, Lily was forced to do my job for me. She ended the relationship herself. I never learned whether Lily had herpes or not, and although it would be three years until a doctor confirmed that I was clean, I never mentioned the sores on my penis. Not to Lily or anyone else.
That's the final story of the year. Thanks to everyone who listened to season two. Making this season was the biggest project I've ever worked on in my life, and I'm really proud of how it came out. If you enjoyed the episodes, please tell a friend about the show. This is the most helpful thing you can do. I don't have an advertising budget or anyone else helping me with the podcast. It's just me and you listeners. So I rely on you to tell people about it. People I can't reach. There's anyone who likes crazy, stupid stories. If you haven't already supported the podcast, now's the time to do it. Anything you can give will help. No amount is too small. But if you support the show with $10 or more, you will receive a bonus podcast episode as well as a 30-song album of outtakes and rarities from my musical catalog. The season doesn't have to end now. You can have one more episode. A bonus episode. You can send money to me directly through Venmo. My Venmo is at Fletcher C. Johnson. Or you can send me money through PayPal. My PayPal is FletcherCJohnson at gmail.com. If you give $10 or more, remember to include your email address in a note with the payment so I can send you that bonus stuff. The last three months have been spent exclusively on producing episodes, working on the audio elements. And now that that's done, I'm really looking forward to getting back to writing. I've already built some outlines for season three. Uh, I'm going to dive deeper into my day-to-day life during those two years that I was couch surfing. I've got more very confused love stories. I've got car wrecks, tornadoes, destructive pranks, and people passed out in a bush where everyone is urinating. So expect season three a year from now, or, or probably a year and change, actually, based on how much work went into this current season. I want to say thank you to all the listeners. Thanks again to everyone who kicked in some money. Thanks to everyone who told a friend about the show. And thanks to James Ellis and the public announcement team for their guidance. You can contact me through my email, FletcherCJohnson at gmail.com. Send any questions, concerns, compliments, book recommendations, publishing deals, show offers. I still want to play music at your house. Probably the next tour I'm going to do is a full band tour. So if you're in a band and you want to book us a show in your town, please reach out to me. We'd love to. We're on our way. Also, hit me up if you're looking for guests for your podcast. I fucking love podcasts. So till next season, you've been listening to Listening to Fletcher C. Johnson. I'm Fletcher C. Johnson. Thanks for listening.